Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. You're about to hear a conversation that I had with Fabio Rojas, a professor of sociology at Indiana University, Bloomington. Fabio is actually the only sociologist I know, and I've probably known him for 10 or 15 years. And though I can't tell you exactly where or when I first met him, I can tell you that every time I have encountered Fabio, he always has something interesting to say. Whether he's talking about research on how Twitter data can be used to predict congressional elections or Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy on America, Fabio is always worth listening to. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. know so many things about so many different things. And so many of them are really relevant right now. Not that they're not always relevant, but especially right now, there's a lot going on. But I have sort of an ulterior motive today, which is also because I think a lot of people don't know what sociology is, or they like once took a sociology class because they had to. Um, But I also think sociology gets kind of a bad rap. You know, people are like, what's the point of sociology, that sort of thing. So let's start with sociology, because what I'd love to have at the end of this is for people in the audience to walk away and say, yeah, now I understand why it's important. Now I understand why it's valuable for me uh, to do something like pay attention to it. What is sociology? What does a sociologist do? What's a day look like for a sociologist? So sociology is a social science discipline. Which, we, which means that we use uh, scientific tools such as data gathering, hypothesis testing, description of the world, in order to develop theories of social life. Sociologists tend to focus on the what you might call the communal or group aspects of social life. Uh, for example, a lot of sociologists may work in the area of culture, understanding how people interpret the world. They may study things like family, they may study communities, social relationships, uh, organizations. These are the kinds of things that sociologists study. Uh, and sociologists are very Catholic and very universal in the kinds of data they enjoy uh, looking at. For example, one sociologist may focus on surveys. They may uh, do a survey to figure out what you think about Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden. Uh, but another sociologist may do ethnography, which is the uh, in-person study of a social group or milieu where you actually show up to a location, you take notes, and you observe people for, for months or even years at a time. And then there are also kind of mathematical and computational sociologists who may look at social trends by looking at, say, looking at a billion tweets or a billion Facebook posts and crunching that data. And so uh, if I were to describe, uh, you know, um, what sociology is in a nutshell, it is trying to understand who we are as a group, as a collective, and how all of the pieces of who we are come together in our daily communal lives. And that's something that these days I think is especially relevant and important. And I know I saw you just had a piece uh, in the last few days. I picked it up off of your blog uh, about violent protests. And I definitely want to talk about protests. Uh, I think that's an important topic right now. But Thinking about sociology as an academic discipline, I think a lot of people could say, yes, I understand the value of looking at groups of people. I understand the value of thinking about culture and that. 
But can you really ac have an academic study of things like protests? I mean, aren't protests just free-for-alls, you know? So as a sociologist, when you think about protest, and you've done a lot of work on protests, so if you talk about that, that would be cool. How do you approach that with kind of, you know, your academic hat on? Yeah, so one of the big challenges of social science is uh, understanding that everything is a process and everything can be measured. And once you understand that everything can be measured in some way, then you can start applying the scientific method to it. So, for example, getting to the issue of protest, uh, yes, you could say, well, some of them are disorganized, some of them are actually very organized. But you could even start with very simple questions to say, how often does protest happen? Uh, does it happen more in, say, cities versus downstate? Um, how big are the protests? How many people tend to show up at protests? What do they say? Right. And once you realize, oh, I can actually measure that, I can collect information on that, then you can start asking really interesting questions. Like, for example, do, um, do protests increase during an election year? That's a great question. Do protests increase uh, when there's a downturn in the economy? So you might have a theory that protest happens when people are economically deprived or out of work. Right. Um, so just. With those very simple examples, we can see how you could um, come up with a scientifically interesting study of protest to say it's an event, it's a process, it can be measured. You can ask about what causes protest or what the effects of protest are. So, for example, a lot of political scientists and sociologists ask the question, uh, does protest make Congress or the governors uh, respond more to what happens in their state or area, right? And so once you understand, like, oh, these are things I can actually uh, keep a record of, yeah. I can uh, get data on, then you can apply all the normal tools that you would in any other form of scientific investigation. You can say, is there a correlation? Is there some way to get from correlation to cause? What right? other experiments you can run to, to suss something out? Or what people call natural experiments, where there's kind of natural variation in what happens, and you see whether some other factor depends on that. And um, that is how, you know, people study protests. They just start asking really simple questions like how many do you have, where they show up. You might also have questions about individuals, like which people are most likely to join a protest movement, who is more likely to donate to a, ca a protest campaign. And once again, you can ask pretty sensible questions about that. So, for example, you may say, are liberal people versus conservative people more likely to donate to Black Lives Matter? Uh, are they more likely to express approval of it on social media? Are they more likely to express approval of Black Lives Matter in a survey? And so that is how you develop questions about protests in particular. And that is what makes uh, sociology and the social sciences in, in general very exciting that you may walk around and you may say, you know, the social life order, does it have some structure? Is there a pattern? Can I predict something about it or say something about it? the answer is yes, often you can. And that's what's really exciting about it. Well, let's go back to some of the first questions you mentioned there. The first being, are there more protests in an election year? And then a second, I think, are there more protests in the midst of an economic downturn? So we are in the middle of an election year and the economy is certainly uh, volatile at the moment as a result of COVID-19. Uh, what is, and, and I'm going to ask the question is, what's the answer to those questions, recognizing that presumably this is an ongoing thing, you're constantly 
sociologists and other social scientists are constantly gathering data and looking at that data. I mean, what is the what's the thinking on it as it as the research stands today? Are protests more likely in an election year? Are they more likely to happen in the midst of an economic downturn? Yeah, so um, the consensus view amongst uh, people who study protest is uh, that political opportunity matters. Uh, that's a fancy phrase for when there's an opening, your group comes out to protest. And so you have to ask what counts as an opening. And election years are definitely examples of openings where people are looking at politics more so than um, other times, right? And so um, probably, you know, election years are probably one great political opening, which does seem to increase protests a little bit. Another political opening, which I've been arguing for in the literature, um, is when your party is out of power. So when your party's out of power, you get upset and you go to the streets. Yeah. And in recent history, we've seen two great examples of that, that uh, the Tea Party was a big movement that happened when Republicans were out of power. And when they went into power, the Tea Party just kind of got absorbed into the Republican Party. And the anti-war party, anti-war movement, which I wrote a book about with Michael Heaney, um, what happened there was uh, there was a very big movement, but it was big during the Bush administration. And when Obama won, uh, who was the anti-war, at least anti-Iraq war candidate, um, the protests went down. So it's not just even election years, but also who is in power? Who is in power? That That's, that's a big one. Then the other question that I mentioned, uh, does protest or uh, unrest, you know, happen during um, – economic downturns, actually the evidence is usually points in the opposite direction. Uh, the great historical examples and the feeling is that uh, economic uh, downturns do not uh, link up with protests because when people are out of jobs, uh, they're scrambling to survive. And so they may not have, you know, all the time in the world in order to, you know, go to a meeting and do stuff. Um, great examples are like the 1960s protests, right? The late 60s were actually mainly a time of economic expansion, right? The anti-war protests were a time of an economic expansion in the early 2000s, right? Then they disappear around 2008. You don't remember a whole lot of protests happening in 2008. And then as things turn around, you see the Tea Party pop up again. And so one theory that um, people have is that it's less about your immediate economic prospects and more about uh, expectations being broken. Well, yeah. right. So, for example, in the 60s, one argument that's been made is that uh, one reason that you saw, and there was segregation for a long time, you know, it's not like there was only segregation in the 60s, segregation was instituted as early as the 1880s in the U.S. Um, so they had, so there was black-white segregation, but the civil rights movement really only took off in the 50s and 60s. And it's a complicated story, but at least one factor that people believe in is that, uh, you know, when society gets wealthier and people get left behind and yeah. they're still segregated, people say, hey, why am I not part of the issue here? Yeah. Uh, in studies of the French Revolution, people always notice that the French economy was on a bit of a rebound during the French Revolution. Um, you know, so the mantra may have been about, you know, bread and feeding the poor, but in terms of economic indicators that historians have, there was actually a bit of a turnaround. And that fits the general picture of, hey, things are improving, but the king is still overtaxing us, right? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I was expecting the answer to be the opposite, that uh, when things are really bad economically, it's more likely people are going to get out on the streets and protest. But of course, that makes perfect sense that they have more immediate needs. Although 
interestingly, as you described it with the French Revolution, there's a piece of it that makes it sound like protest is a bit of a luxury, right? I mean, not in the sense that, you know, it's like big screen TVs or whatever, but in order to be in a position to get out and protest, you have to have some other things already settled to be able to have that ability. Yeah, and that's a really great point. Um, there's even a word for that uh, in, within the social movement's research literature. They call it biographical availability. And what people have noticed is something super simple. If you go to a protest, you only see two types of people, college students and retired people. <laughs> now, of course, that's a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. I'm exaggerating for the sake of making an example. But in study after study, you notice that um, not always – um, so, for example, if you go to a labor protest, like a labor union protest, most of those will be kind of adult workers, obviously. But, you know, you go to Black Lives Matter, anti-war movement, Occupy Wall Street, uh, Tea Party, they tend to either be very young or very old. And the reason is simply biographical availability, that um, basically when you're very young, you literally have nothing else to do. Yeah. And so that gives you a lot of extra time in order to uh, pick up a movement to work with. Then also, when you're an older adult and you're retired, then you also, you know, have a lot of things settled. You have children uh, who have moved away from home. You uh, literally have a lot more time because you're no longer working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Um, you know, just think about the fundamental logic of protest, which is that it's not the most expensive activity to do in terms yeah. of time, but it does take some time. And so, you know, uh, you and I, we live uh, around Indianapolis, right? Yep. And so in order to go downtown, if there was a political protest, right, and Indy doesn't even have the greatest public transportation to start with, um, but say you're in a suburb and you really care about an issue, then you're like, well, that could be driving an hour from the suburb, from Fisher's Point or from Bloomington or, you know, uh, Greenwood or something, finding parking. So the point is, it's just a lot of time and effort. Yeah. And people who are very young and people who are retired tend to have a lot more time on the average than somebody with three kids. They just finish a 50-hour work week. Yeah. So, yeah, so by availability and, um, you know, comfort uh, seems to be a precondition of protest as well, which is that wealthier societies tend to generate a lot of protests. Um, and it kind of makes, it kind of makes sense that if you're uh, living in a, in a, in an impoverished place that has famines or, or, you know, other horrible things happening, your ability to build an organization, collect funds and mobilize a protest is actually fairly limited aside from kind of spontaneous gatherings. But for like sustained protest uh, marches and movements, uh, you need some material wealth. You talked about organization, organizing a protest, that sort of thing. And and when you were talking as well, I think about younger people having, you know, the time on their hands. I think there's also a sense, I would think that there's also a sense of idealism, right? An optimism that you can change the world. Can can you talk a little bit about what you have learned about with respect to protests in terms of their effectiveness? So does uh, does an effective protest require organization and clarity on what the protesters want to have happen? Uh, and maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit. What is an effective protest? Is it just something getting, I'm sure we could define it a lot of different ways. Is it just something that gets attention or does it have an impact on a specific thing when you think about protests? Yeah, when people study uh, protest movements, they usually like to talk about what the movement wanted, and they call that goal attainment. That's just a fancy word for okay. getting what you want. 
So for example, if I go to my school board and I say, please teach this book, right? So it could be like a creationist group saying, please teach this, or maybe Black Lives Matter group saying, please teach more black history or something like that. That's a specific goal. And you can ask, do they get that goal or not? And then more generally, there are just other kinds of outcomes that you may care about. For example, did you uh, change public opinion? Did you get people to change their everyday behaviors? Uh, sometimes there could even be negative outcomes of movements. There could be blowback and counter movements that push back against you. Um, and so you asking your question, you know, is it clarity? Is it organization? What is it? And it turns out that you almost repeated word for word the textbook answer. And so usually in studies of social movements, one of the things that you learn is, first of all, you have to be clear. And there are a lot of movements which actually are not terribly clear. Um, my favorite example from recent American history is probably Occupy Wall Street, um, which had incredibly broad and vague goals. Uh, they wanted to restructure all of American society to eliminate inequality. And we can talk about the merit of that uh, goal. But uh, they, didn't, they weren't very specific often about how they, how they were going to achieve it. And uh, that, that's a key issue that distinguishes uh, movements that are successful from movements that are not successful. So here's a movement that had exceptionally clear goals uh, that was very successful in relatively recent times. But the movement for uh, queer equality, for LGBT equality in our society, um, you could you could imagine a movement with extremely vague goals that say, you know, we should be equal in terms of our sexual orientation in all ways. Yeah. That might be a hard goal to achieve because you're not sure what that means. But instead, the uh, LBGT movement had very clear and exceptionally well-defined goals. So they said things like, okay, gay marriage, that is our thing. That's very clear. Like, can you go down to the courthouse and get a license for two men or two women to be married to each other? Yes or no. And once you're like, okay, well, we can mobilize around that. We could file lawsuits. We could protest the courthouse. We could call people. Like, that's a thing you can ask for. Uh, another really great example is... Um, the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. That was a Clinton era um, policy. It was an executive order, which basically uh, had to do with the internal politics of the US Armed Services. Uh, there was a movement to expel all gays from um, military service. And you know we can argue about the merits of what Clinton did or did not do, but he ended up having this uh, executive order saying that um, if he didn't, um, if he didn't voluntarily uh, talk about your uh, orientation, we would not ask. And so that was seen as very stifling and very repressive for gay people in the military. So that was the thing that the LBGT movement targeted. They were very clear. And there are other things like, you know, having health insurance include same-sex partners as beneficiaries. There are all these very specific things that uh, I think are actually rather admirable that, you know, you know uh, we want people to be equal. And uh, the LBGT movement was very effective in having a laundry list of like very specific things that uh, they asked for. In a lot of cases, they won and they got them. We want equality, but here are the things that would be signals that we have achieved it. Marriage. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's a very fair way of saying it, which is uh, they, they weren't a movement for gay marriage specifically. They were a movement for broader equality. But you have to ask for something. Right? Right. You so have to ask for something that's a clear signal of what your beliefs are. Uh, and then the other thing you mentioned in your question was organization. Yeah. And um, this is a very um, well-known argument within social movement research, which is that movements that are well-organized tend to get more stuff done. That's just yeah. what it is. So 
if you want um, the Supreme Court, for example, to issue, um, like in the Obergefell uh, ruling in 2014, to say that it, that states could not ban gay marriage, you need lawyers, yeah. they need paychecks, they need research assistance. Uh, those issues need to be publicized, maybe you could take out ads, either that you have to rent spaces where people can have meetings. There's all this kind of infrastructure that goes behind the movement. You have to have knowledge of the things that are going to change that, right? You have to have knowledge of the system that those lawyers work within, right? Exactly. And this is one of the less glamorous but most important parts of movements, which is that whatever you're targeting, there's uh, knowledge specific to that target. So if you want to get the Supreme Court to rule in your favor, you're going to have to pay a bunch of very expensive lawyers who will tell you how to win a case in front of the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. Or if you want to lobby Congress, you're going to have to hire lobbyists, right? Yeah. And right now with Black Lives Matter and the uh, George Floyd protest, you're going to have to know a lot about police departments if you ever want them to change their policies or behaviors. Like just having a sign is not sufficient. You're going to have to really learn how police departments put together, all the legal doctrines that kind of bind them, the, their, their city policies, the culture of police academies and police departments. And so you have to get people who have some knowledge of that, and organizations are the way that gets done, right? That is the basic technology for it. So in your own research, you've looked at uh, the Black student movement and how that those protests had success, particularly in terms of establishing Black studies as an academic discipline. So is that a good example of protest that was organized there was knowledge, there were clear asks, um, and that result in an outcome like that, among others. Right? That's a really great example. So uh, the work you're referring to is a book called From Black Power to Black Studies, How Radical Social Movement Became an Academic Discipline. And the purpose of that book was to examine how black student protesters in the 1960s protested for black studies programs and actually got them. And one of the themes that comes up in the book is that being specific in knowing how higher education works was crucial to understanding why some schools got black studies and some schools did not get black studies. And so that's another great example where there were another, a number of student activists back in the 60s and 70s who were 100% honest and idealistic and said, you know, we want to uh, diversify the curriculum, we want to make it less racist, we want to reform it in all these ways. But um, some people had a very clear plan of action uh, that actually helped them achieve things. And other people did not pursue that. They just thought that, you know, saying the slogan was enough, but it is not enough. And the reason is, is that schools and universities are organizations that have their own rules, their own culture. And if you don't understand how universities think about academic programs and how they approve them, you're going to lose out on a lot. A big part of the From Black Power book was describing uh, programs that didn't work out terribly well because the student activists and the scholar activists who were um, promoting those programs didn't understand completely how universities work. And in that specific case, the issue is, is that in most universities and colleges, they are justified in terms of their research reputation. So it's not enough to say you want to teach X. You have to really persuade people that if we hire this professor to teach Black studies, that he's going to be a great historian of Black history or an economist of Black business or something like that. And that establishes your um, claim to fame or your foothold within the academy. If you don't do that, 
then it's very hard to get anything done in the university system. And the activists who understood that, they're the ones that built black studies departments, which are still here like 50 years later, while other programs just fizzled and just died on the grapevine. Yeah, it's fascinating. So let's fast forward from those movements to today. And you already mentioned the protests over George Floyd's death uh, and Breonna Taylor and across the country, a variety of different protests. To, you know, to the extent that you are comfortable talking about this and, and what you've seen of it, how would you describe the kind of protesting that's going on? Some of it clearly is what you talked about, about police reform. But some of it is, I think, especially in the early days, I would guess much of it wasn't very well organized. It was just anger, right? Protest in the sense that this is bad. We're going to get out and make it clear that we care. I'm sure there was organized protesting going on. I don't want to diminish that. But, but is that, where does that fit in sort of the spectrum of thinking about protesting? And I would bet that what we saw, you know, in the early days of June versus what we saw three weeks later, there's a difference in the kind of protesting that's going on there, even if the cause, the efficient cause is the same thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. And this is one thing to understand about protests, which is that it's complicated, like everything else. Yeah. It exists on a spectrum. Um, in some cities like Minneapolis being you know, the great case, because that's where George Floyd, where, where the police killed him, um, that is a city that had lots of activist groups who've been fighting for police reform for decades, literally. They've been pushing for this issue over and over and over again. So uh, when uh, the police shot uh, George Floyd, um, they were essentially ready. And of course, they, were, they didn't know this was going to happen, but they had the networks, the tools, the political connections. They were able to really you know, organize protests actually very well. And of course, this happened in other cities where there were big activist communities. But then there are other places where the activist community may not have been as big or they didn't foresee this happening. It was more spontaneous. And so you're going to see uh, in this wave of protests a huge amount of variation. Uh, where I live in Bloomington, uh, about two weeks after George Floyd's murder, there was actually a very well-organized protest event uh, where something like five or 6,000 people came out. And Bloomington is not a very large town. It's a town of about 70,000. So that five or 6,000 people come out is actually a huge, huge uh, um, uh, victory for them. And that shows the power of organization. Like there's a, there's a very well-developed activist community in Bloomington. There have been previous Black Lives Matter protests. And so they took a week or two. They set it up. They had lots of people come out. It was very peaceful. People expressed themselves and they were able to do that. But in other places, probably the activist communities were taken by surprise. And another thing to remember is that uh, George Floyd's murder was not the first police. You mentioned Breonna Taylor and there were other people. So this is probably building up for two or three weeks. Um, and also the stress relating to the pandemic and people losing jobs and the shutdown of the economy. There's a lot happening. And then, boom, you know, this thing kind of just comes, comes out of not thin air, but it's been pent up for a while. And now it's really expressing itself. So we were talking about the fact that the current situation entails two of the things you had earlier identified. One, which is an opportunity, and that is a lot of people being out of work, a lot of people being at home or, and having been stuck at home because of the pandemic. And then secondly, a disappointment of expectations, that there is an expectation we should have that 
one can that because one is arrested they don't deserve to die um and i think you know that or you can be at home and not get shot eight times right um so that the the circumstances were present for protests is that fair yeah i think there's a lot to that um, if we look at Minneapolis specifically, we can see that as a great example of um, expectations that just kept on not being met over and over again. Um, if you'd like, or your audience would like to uh, see what's happening in Minneapolis, go to YouTube, and the Minneapolis City Council puts up all its public meetings on YouTube, including recent Zoom meetings where they discussed uh, George Floyd and the issue, and the City Council just kept on saying, we have so many opportunities to fix this. We've tried to fix this. Uh, they even mentioned that in 2012, the Obama Department of Justice gave them a clean bill of health to the police department. So there was a long series of uh, opportunities where they could have done better. They could have had real reform, but nothing really uh, changed in substance. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of unmet expectation really propelled a lot of this stuff. And that's true in other places. Like why, you know, in general, are people still doing no-knock warrants? Why are people, you know, uh, allowed to use lethal force? And we can start seeing the elements of change, uh, but it's not like this issue was not uh, discussed before. You know, we can go back to say the Rodney King riots in 1992. You know, we can go to, uh, you know, Michael Brown's murder. You know, we can go back to Philandro Castile. And it, it's very, it's an issue that just keeps uh, not going away, it keeps going and going and going. And uh, the pandemic just kind of makes it worse. It takes all these people, makes sticks them at home, and then they're watching these videos of people getting shot or killed or murdered. And it just, uh, how would it not make any sane person angry? You know, seeing a video like that. And so it's a it's a unique moment that yes, we're in an election year. People are looking at Trump nonstop more than they usually are. Um, it's a it's, the pandemic is very unusual, and that's not just that people are out of work, but they're out of work and not searching for work. They're kind of at home, and there's really not any place for them to go. And then this persistent police violence problem, which um, just keeps not going away. And so all those things kind of come together to really make the movement very big. And to last over a long period of time and to spread and not diminish over time, right? So it's gone from local areas to across the country to across the world now. Um, I wonder, too, about the, the extent to which expectations have been disappointed. You just described a whole list of things. And there's this, this sense of exasperation. You know, we've, we've been here before nothing changes. Um, does that account for the violence? I definitely want to talk about this research on violence uh, and and how it affects protesting, how it affects other things. But but do you think that what we saw in a lot of different places here in Indianapolis, property destruction, that kind of thing, is that connected to a sense of exasperation and having been here before? Well, you know, uh, without going into specifics, because I haven't sat down and really researched uh, what happened in India a couple of weeks ago, uh, but in general, there's a couple of things to remember, which is, first of all, uh, you know, most people who show up to protest are nonviolent. That's kind of like, that's a good baseline, a good starting point to remember, which is 99 out of 100 people who show up to a BLM protest 
are there to really peacefully express their anger at the police, but not to be violent. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is that um, within uh, a very radical uh, sector of people, uh, people often use protests as an opportunity to commit damage and violence. And so, um, you know, this has always been a constant thing for as long as there's been protests, which is there's a couple of people who use it as an opportunity to do bad things. In some cases, it may just be purely for personal motives, like somebody says, oh, this is my opportunity to rip off a TV from a local shop. In other cases, it may be political, where there are people who say, okay, at, at every protest, I'm going to be the one who makes the biggest uh, impact by turning over a police car, setting it on fire, or something like that. Uh, and then in some other cases, uh, police officers uh, use violence. They hurt protesters, and then protesters, in some cases, push back. So when you think about these different things and you ask how much is the violence linked to exasperation, just remember that most people were not violent. Also, some people are violent at every protest. That's just the way they do things. And, uh, you know, often you'll see people like the, the black bandanas. That's actually kind of a subculture within certain kinds of activism, which is to show up anonymously and commit damage or to really, you know, uh, show the system up for what it is. That's kind of their opinion. Some people are purely opportunistic. Um, and how much of that is due to exasperation is unclear, but to remember that uh, violence does happen, but it is a minority of the people who show up. I know you are familiar with this, the the paper Omar Wasa, who's at Princeton, uh, has written research on violent protests versus nonviolent protests, and there's a, a variety of very interesting things about it, not the least of which is the reception of that paper and some of the things right. that resulted from it. And, and we can talk about that. And I do want to talk about that a little bit more in terms of um, politics and the internet and politics and things like that, social media. But let's first talk about it with respect to protests themselves. So as I understand it, the paper, I have not read it, but I understand that the paper is looking at 1960s era protests. Correct. And the information and the research supports a conclusion that those protests, the nonviolent protests had, or sorry, violent protests had the reverse, may have had a reverse political impact of what was intended. Is that correct? correct? Okay. Yeah. So what that paper, um, it, it's written by Omar Wasau at Princeton. Uh, he's in the political science department, I believe. And, um, he uh, did the following analysis. He looked uh, at various regions of the country. He looked at where there were riots. The federal government in the 1960s had collected data on where riots happened. And then he asked, um, you know, in places where um, there were riots, did you see an increase in the Nixon vote or a decrease in the Nixon vote compared to other factors like his demographic composition, how voted in the last election, other kinds of factors. And this is very important because in the 1960s, uh, when Richard Nixon was running in 1968, not 1960, but 1968, he ran as the uh, law and order candidate. And that's usually understood to be a kind of a dog whistle term, bad people. So he said, I'm not like them. I'm for law and order. Uh, and then the riots happened, you know, like the Watts riots, riots in Detroit, other kinds of riots happened. And then they happened in various places. And so uh, what uh, Omar found was that when you saw more riots, uh, you saw an increase in the Nixon vote, the law and order vote, and which is kind of an anti-civil rights vote uh, in retrospect. 
And it's a very, uh, very well-constructed paper. I've read it myself. Um, it came out of the lead uh, political science review called the American Political Science Review. I mean, the lead uh, political science journal called the American Political Science Review. Um, and it's a very thorough analysis. Uh, so if any of you are a quantitative, uh, you know, uh, nerds, you can definitely nerd out and look at all the different statistical tests you carried out to see is that effect really there? And the answer is, yeah, it's there. And this is also consistent with other research by people like Jack Goldstone, uh, myself, uh, Erica Chenoweth. Uh, she's a political scientist who studies uh, violent protest overseas. Now, it's not always the case. I can talk about some exceptions in a second, but in general, violent protest does not get you, get you what you want. And, um, and uh, the hypothesis that a lot of researchers have is that when you get violent, you look back. And in a movement to succeed in society, they usually need the cooperation of a lot of people. So when you commit violence, people say, don't cooperate with that guy. He's the guy who trashed that store. He's the guy who shoved that old lady in the street. And so that leads to your side looking bad and the other side looking good. Um, yeah, so that's the general picture. And uh, that APSR paper is the latest in a long uh, debate among scholars about exactly what violent protest does or does not do. And like I said, we can talk about the exceptions in a minute, but in general, uh, violent protest does not get, get you what you want. And I recently wrote a blog uh, post for the Urban uh, Violence Network, and uh, for their uh, blog, for their website, I wrote a short piece. It's only a couple hundred words, but I summarized not only Omar's paper, but other research uh, by economists who said the economic impacts of the same riots. So using that same data, uh, for example, uh, there's evidence that black unemployment increased after the riots in the long term, that black men were less likely to have a job if they lived in a neighborhood with a riot. Uh, they also did a study of housing values, right? So if you're living, uh, if you're African-American and you're living in a neighborhood with a riot, the value of your house goes down. So when you start putting all this stuff together, the picture is actually not good at all. So, yeah, we'll link to that piece that you had on the it's the VMRN. Is that correct? No, yeah, it's the urban yes, the Urban Violence Network yeah. uh, website. They're, they're British researchers who uh, bring together scholars who talk about urban violence and urban crime. Uh, so and that's the website. We'll link to that. And as it was that I was reading that where I read your summary of Omar's paper, and I I I don't know if you've seen this, but a less scholarly approach to this. Just this past Tuesday, uh, Kevin Williamson had something in the National Review, and it was called Managing, I think it was like Managing Destruction, and the subtitle was something about, you know, uh, human violence is not a problem to be solved, it's a problem to be managed. But near the end of that, he says, I'm going to read this to you, he says, after he goes through this whole sort of exploratory thing, and he's talking about the Seattle, the situation in Seattle with the uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or right. various names it goes by. About the foregoing, I will say this. If I were betting my own money on it, I would not bet on Donald Trump's being reelected in November. But if there were an exceedingly clever conspiracy to get Trump reelected, it would look like what's happening in Seattle right now. And he goes on to say about people being stampeded into promising to disband police departments, etc. I mean, that seems to me to be sort of the layman's approach to what you just described. And that is, protest can have the exact opposite effect that they're meant to by scaring people. They could by scaring people, um, particularly on this subject of law and order. Yes. Right. And so that's a consistent theme or question that pops up 
which is, uh, you know, how do your tactics as a social movement help you achieve what you want? When do they backfire? When do they help? So, for example, um, I have a, a paper uh, uh, in a journal called Qualitative Sociology where I did some research on the anti-war movement. And uh, this paper reported on a protest that happened in Fayetteville, North Carolina, at Fort Bragg. And this is a great example of like, how do you, how do you try not to alienate people? And so one of the issues with peace movements in particular, and this is similar to the law and order thing, is that if you oppose war, you're seen as the bad guy because you're seen as somebody who supports Saddam Hussein or supports a bad guy. And so one of the things that they did in the anti-war movement was they had an internal discussion saying we have to rearrange ourselves so that we're less about, uh, you know, uh, being for the enemy but being for the troops instead. So a lot of movements are very uh, sensitive to this fact that they don't want to trigger a law and order response. They don't want to be seen as unpatriotic. They don't want to be seen as the people who are tolerating street crime. So they have to frame their issues in ways that really uh, try to grab the public's attention in a way that's already consistent with what they believe. Um, so all the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, in that Kevin Williamson article, you know, there is a kernel of truth, you know, Trump has an incredible uphill battle. He's, you know, at the date of this recording, he's, he's trailing by an enormous amount. There's 14% unemployment. That's tough for any president to overcome. Yeah. Uh, but imagine a 1968 situation. And this is what makes Omar Wasow's paper so compelling, which is that honestly was a toss up. Like it was a razor thin election. I think the popular vote was only about a million votes. It was just honestly was not a very uh, big margin. And so you could imagine, should, if there had not been riots and the Democratic candidate had actually got just a couple thousand more votes here and there, it would have been, uh, you know, President Humphrey, not uh, President Nixon. And that would have been a huge change in American history, right? Yeah. Um, and so even though I think that Trump is, that he would have faced an uphill battle with a pandemic and unemployment, you know, I don't think the protests would have changed that landscape very much. But imagine, you know, an alternative world where the pandemic didn't happen. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, there were really bad protests that got out of control. Then you can imagine in some battleground states, in some suburbs, you could scare the voters by saying, you know, vote for me because these other guys are not good guys. Yeah. Let's let's take from there something else you've done a lot of research on, I know, um, and it's related. There's something that's very different from the, the 60s to now, and that is the presence of the Internet and social media and things like that. Uh, one, as we were talking about Omar Wasow's paper, one of the things that happened after it was released, it was tweeted by someone who is a political analyst uh, and was caused all kinds of controversy that ended with that fellow losing his job. That in and of itself, I mean, I think versus the, you know, the 60s to have an academic paper in the APSR, which is to say, you know, it's a very elite journal lead to people's dismissal because of the way it's, you know, that tweet is understood, that sort of thing, is a totally different landscape. But also, you've looked at how social media can can be considered as part of prediction in elections. Uh, and you maintain, I was looking at your blog, you've got, you said you're, you're active on four different platforms and you have different things that you want to sort of do on each of those platforms, which I suspect is a much more sophisticated strategy than the average person has about social media. But the, the world is very different. And even your work on Twitter in 
looking at congressional elections. That was 2013, maybe? Right, 2013. Yeah, I mean, 2013, seven years ago, like, how different are things today? I mean, Instagram, was there Instagram in 2013? I don't know. How does how does the constant barrage of information change the way we think about politics, but also change the way people express themselves, opinions, all those things? Yeah, that, that's a really huge question. Yeah. Um, and you, you can start breaking it down in a couple of different ways, which is that, um, first of all, the digital world provides information very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, I got into an argument with one of my undergraduates a few months ago about exactly what Elizabeth Warren had said the day before. Um, and I'm like, he said, no, she said this. And I said, no, she said that. And you know what? As soon as class was over, I just picked up my phone. <laughs> I went to the Elizabeth Warren website and I read her press release. And it turned out we were both right that yeah. she had uh, that she, in different parts of the same press release she had said slightly different things, um, and so uh, but, but that goes to show the the speed at which this can happen. Which is uh, you know when I was in high school, if you wanted to know what somebody thought, you'd have to write a letter and wait for a few weeks for the congressional office to write you a response, right? Or call you or something. There'll be some crazy lag time. Uh, but now, literally, I can just pick up a cell phone and say, what did Elizabeth Warren really, really say? Uh, so that's one aspect, which is the speed of information. Uh, this, the news cycle, the media news cycle is just accelerating even further, right? So things can uh, spread within minutes or even hours when before it used to be days or weeks, right? That's another uh, thing. A third issue with social media is that it's a platform for organizing, right? And... Um, you know, David Karp, who's a political scientist, wrote a great book called Analytical Activism, where he says, you know, one of the long-standing uh, uh, basis of politics is that you win by getting a small minority of people energized to take the effort to push your issue. And guess what? In the digital age, that makes it way, way easier. Like, you can outreach, you can use data analytics, uh, you can use A-B testing and experiment, like who responds to the political messages that you're, that you're uh, selecting and shooting out there. And so digital media has really, um, really converted things. And then you mentioned the, uh, I think the man's name, the political analyst was David Shore. And, uh, right. And that raises the issue of things that are kind of new, which is uh, there's kind of um, cyber bullying as a general thing or people, uh, you know, uh, team up against you online. But also, it's it's a form of a purge. You know, I think I saw that term uh, tossed around in a couple of news articles today that the David Shore incident is an example of an anti-racism purge, uh, where basically, um, you know, sometimes in political movements and groups, there's a strive for purity. Um, people want to shout down people who disagree with them. There's signal, public signals of virtue and punishment for people who don't obey the signals. And a lot of these things that you're mentioning are examples of that, where you know, there is the issue of police violence and, you know, the protests and how to effectively protest that. And the fact that, you know, uh, somebody could lose their job by tweeting an APSR article, uh, which is, by the way, just, you know, I really do recommend the listeners, if they have a knack for statistics, to really read it. It really is a very, uh, very well thought out article that that kind of uh, tweet would get you fired. Yeah. Right? That, that's something. And so, you know, this is no different than, you know, maybe, you know, the McCarthy kind of era where, you know, people demanded obedience. Um, you know, we can go through American history and find other examples. Um, you know, it's not quite as bad as the McCarthy era, 
you know, I don't want to trigger my own Twitter mob to come after me to say that, you know, this was as bad as McCarthy era. It clearly was not. But the point is, it is, does have that flavor, right? Where it's just, yeah. you know, where if uh, you express any disagreement with a particular point of view, uh, on Twitter, for example, uh, I think I had a tweet where I said something like, I was horrified at the murder of, of people by police, but also at property damage, and people got very upset at that statement. You know, like, you know, obviously, you know, you know, losing your life is worse, worse than losing your property, that's clear, but also to say that we can be horrified at damage and danger, you know, that comes from that kind of violence. You know, and actually I got all these hate tweets and all that kind of thing. So we're definitely living in an era where there's um, kind of a, um, a purge mentality among some people, among kind of some intellectual streams. And it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. And also from an ethics perspective, it's a little disappointing because when people invented Twitter, you know, they didn't imagine uh, tweet mobs and anti-racist purges and even right-wing witch hunts. We can think of all the right-wing examples of where some left-wing professor says something and a bunch of conservative tweeters got on their case. So it's not an issue of one side versus the other. That's not what I'm saying. But when people met in Twitter, how many of them sat down and said, yes, I would, love, I would love to have mobs of people chase people for unpopular opinions and enforce them from their jobs? That's an interesting thing that's happening, which is from a normative or ethical perspective. This is not what social media was ever intended for. And so we have to take a moment back and say, hold on, you know, like, just because you say something obnoxious about Black Lives Matter doesn't mean you have to lose your job. Or even in David Shore's case, even if you just tweet something interesting uh, that provides data that's contrary to what some people think, doesn't mean you get to lose your job either, right? Yeah. And we have to really seriously think, you know, like, um, this is this is clearly not a good thing, and it really uh, merits a lot of reflection. Well, and it, in a way, as you're describing that, to me, it sort of gets us back to the initial point about sociology and the value of research and social sciences, uh, instead of being ready to just jump on the first thing we see on social media, or even, I mean, I've been in discussions since Memorial Day, where I've heard things that I thought were really kind of outrageous, people saying about whether it's protesters or whatever. Uh, I think as a sociologist, what you're doing and something that people can emulate in day-to-day -day conversation is to stop and take a beat. And instead of immediately making an assumption about the person's intentions or about the person's point of view, to ask some questions. Because when you described what, what sociologists do, even in thinking about something like protest, you know, what what kinds of questions can we ask about that to learn? You know, it's more complicated than there's just a protest out there and there's no way to understand it. Uh, it would be nice if we could apply that same kind of methodology at a personal level to the kinds of debates and the disagreements that we have when everything else around us is pretty toxic and very polarized. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is why I love teaching sociology. I tell people, this isn't like your uh, physics class where they teach you about quarks or something or electrons, and you're not sure how that applies to you in everyday life. Like maybe physics 101 clearly applies to everyday life, but a lot of the other stuff that physicists study is cool, but just doesn't apply. You're never going to meet a black hole. Like it's just not going to happen. <laughs> you're not going to be driving on 465 and you hope not. <laughs> Right. It's just not going to happen. However, uh, things like identities, relationships, communities, political behavior, 
it's around us every single day, every single day. And so sociology is really one of the great introspective, um, you know, disciplines where it's not introspective in a navel gazing sense, but introspective in a way of saying, okay, you know, I'm a human being. I have a history. I have a legacy. I have an identity. I have preferences. I have interests. I have a gender. I have an ethnicity. And how is that all coming together to make a Jennifer or a Fabio? And, and what does that tell me about where I am? Like, why is Indianapolis the way it is, right? Why is my college the way it is? Why is my family the way it is? And you can have some very interesting answers and thoughtful answers. And that's one of the beauties of sociology. Yeah, that's great. So if people want to follow what you are working on, Fabio, I know one place they can do that is on your blog, orgtheory.net, which we can link to. Thank you. Talk about Context Magazine that you are a co-editor of, because my understanding is that is a that is a journal that is not like the APSR for the average person. Would they be able to pick up a copy of Context and know what's going on and understand how to apply sociological research or get an insight into applying it in their communities? That's that's exactly right. The full name of the journal is Context Sociology for the Public. So the idea is that we take scientific research and we make it accessible to everyday people who are just interested. And you can uh, access uh, Context in a number of ways. We have a website called context.org that is paid for by the American Sociological Association. You can also get a subscription for about 60 bucks a year or 15 bucks an issue. And, And I will say that our covers are fabulous. We have beautiful covers for our issues. A lot of photography in there, a lot of great articles, a lot of charts and graphs. Then also, the other cool thing about Context is that our publisher, Sage Publications, which is this kind of big uh, publisher of journals, we have a special deal with them. And so all your listeners should perk up because I'm going to give you guys a special deal. Every time a new issue of Context magazine comes out, it's free for 30 days, the whole thing. You can download the entire issue. And then after 12 months, there's no paywall. So you can read any issue of context that's a year older for free, completely for free. And the different sections do great things. So we have a section called In Brief, where we have people write short one-paragraph summaries of articles. We have longer feature articles, which are about four or five pages long, that delve into some research topic. We have policy briefs. There's one policy issue that's broken down by a sociologist. So in terms of policing, we recently had one by Joaquin Fields. We wrote an article about why can't we make police officers buy insurance policies for themselves? Oh, yeah. In the same way that, like, if you're a doctor and you injure somebody, you got to pay. Yep. And you got to get insurance to cover that. Why shouldn't the police have the same policy? Right. Yep. So he wrote a great piece about that. We have a, we have a great uh, question and answer interview section. We interviewed Cornell West, Melissa Harris-Perry, Viet Nguyen, who won the Pulitzer and MacArthur Prizes. So we get top-notch interviews, which are so fun to read. They're so great. And that's all uh, for free. Or if you want to get the paper copy delivered to your house, 60 bucks uh, per year, which is a small price to pay for greatness. And also, while I'm plugging Context Magazine, uh, I wanted to give give a shout-out to my uh, co-editor and friend, Rashawn Ray, who is an Indiana University PhD. He's a co-editor. He's a professor at the University of Maryland and a fellow at the Brookings Institution and a leading expert on policing. So check him out, check his videos. He's been on CNN and everything for the last three weeks talking about different 
approaches to police reform. So we edit the journal together uh, when he's not uh, doing police-oriented research. And uh, definitely, uh, everybody should check out context.org. That's great. Yeah, I think that's great that there, it is a, it is a journal by academics, but for everybody, which is which is cool. Good. We'll get all that listed in there. Anything else that you want to talk about that you have coming up that you want people to know about? Oh, sure. Um, so uh, I write in a number of different areas. People can always follow me on Twitter, um, at Fabio Rojas, at Fabio Rojas. Org Theory Net is my blog where I will write on academic things in a, in a format longer than a tweet. And you share uh, jazz, which is awesome. Yeah, and I also share, I do a weekly jazz thing. And if you want to get personal, you can always send me a friendly note on Facebook. You can always do that. In terms of um, my publications and writings, uh, you know, I have a book on social theory. So if you're uh, interested, if you're a social scientist or a policymaker just wants to know what sociology is about, I have a book called Theory for the Working Sociologist. Uh, two books on um, the Black Power Movement, which we discuss in the book on the anti-war movement. And then uh, if you just uh, email me or follow me online, I'll talk about various articles on issues like protest, social media, and organizational behavior. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Well, awesome. thank you so much for reaching out. This has been really lovely. I think you can see what I mean about Fabio. He's a fascinating guy, and I'm sure we could have talked for hours. Maybe the next time you're having a conversation with somebody about the protests that have been happening and which will undoubtedly continue for the coming weeks and months, you can use some of what Fabio talked about today. Protests are complicated things. They're complicated enough that academics do research on protests and that protests have some pattern to them regardless of how they look to us. One, they happen when there's an opportunity, and two, when people's expectations have been disappointed. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.